Faith and Fable, a pastoral podcast that discusses common and often controversial topics from a biblical perspective. My name is Matt Miller. And I'm Matt Henry, and we're continuing with our Systemat 3, our Theology 3, whatever, golly, I've messed that up already. Uh, we're talking about ecclesiology again. We're going to look at, in a final way, at how the Reformers understood the church. Hopefully the one we did before was helpful, uh, because it does... Uh, their, their presence, their beliefs exert influence upon us in ways we don't always understand. So what we're going to do today with no further ado is jump right in on the famous John Calvin and also to a smaller amount uh, the Anabaptists. And we'll explain why when we get to the Anabaptists. Um, but John Calvin, he, he had a definition of what were the marks of a true church just like Luther did because if the Roman Catholic Church wasn't the true church anymore, then we needed to deal with that. So the first thing that he argued had to be present for a true church to exist is the word of God should be preached. And here's a key one, received. Um, it's a radical departure actually from the Roman Catholic Church who greatly diminished any role of the Bible in everyday living. Um, the vast majority of people never heard anything from the Bible. Um, except for maybe some some scripture quoted, but never anything in context and never exposition. Mm -hmm. And what was important to the Roman Catholic Church was a submission to the Pope and their and also to the, those who represented him. But for Calvin as well as Luther, it would instead be marked by a submission to the Word of God, which instantly creates that that tension that would be taking place between them and the Roman Catholic Church. It's really comes down to as simple as who are you going to obey? Well, if, if the scripture says this and the Catholic church says this, and they're not in agreement, you've got to make a decision, right? right. And, and that's really what Luther said, you know, this is where I, I, I'm going to stand here. I can't, I can't do anything else. And uh, Calvin just went a little bit further with that. Yeah. So, but it's not only the preaching and teaching of the Bible for Calvin, but it's the actual reception of it by the people uh, this would, again, distinguish between some guy randomly preaching from someplace, but no one really cares or has any intention to receive it as a preaching of the word. Instead, the people had to receive, had to understand, and had to put it into practice, which is something you and I would say, we like that. We, we appreciate that kind of an attitude that um, you're not just coming to hear a sermon to be entertained or intrigued, but we actually expect you to live this out and act on that. Yeah. Well, it gets into that ex opera operata stuff we talked about mm -hmm. from the doing of the doing Wait, of it. Yeah, I can still not say that. Pronounce it, yeah. Uh, so even many Catholics today, just by showing up to Mass and ingesting that Eucharist, they're they're getting that means of grace in yep. them. Well, Luther would say, um, are we on Luther? No. Calvin. Calvin would say, <laughs> Calvin, uh, we're one tracking. of these days, yeah. Uh, <laughs> you actually had to understand what the Word of God says. You're not just getting grace in you because you show up to a service. Um, you need that word in you, and you need to understand it, and then you need to apply it. Well, and it also then gives a strong admonition then to the one preaching. You're, you're not just 
quoting some sweet little homily or giving some scripture, but you're actually expected to know it, explain it in a manner that is understandable. Remember, a lot of people didn't even know Latin. Right. And it was a Latin mass, and they have no idea what's going on. They can say the words, kind of like a Muslims today. Um, Arabic is the only acceptable form uh, for the true understanding of the Quran. And so there's a lot of people who literally do not understand uh, Arabic. I don't, did, did you know that? But they can quote the entire Quran from memory. Hmm. They literally memorize the sounds in Arabic um, by rote memory. No idea what it says. It's like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, was it was it was it the Second Vatican in the sixties? Yeah, um, when they decided Vatican II. Yeah, um, when they decided to put the mass in the vernacular. Right. But previous to that, it's like you got extra grace points if you went to a mass that was still in Latin. Yep. And then afterward as well. So. Well, and even to this day, there's people who, uh, if you're going to be a good Catholic, it's a Latin mass. But they have no idea what's going on. Nope. Nope. So anyhow, the second thing, so not only is it to be preached and understood or received, the second thing he would say was the sacraments should rightly be administered. So the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper were what Calvin would call, quote, the visible word. Um, in other words, they brought to life the meaning and the essence of the gospel. So they were basically illustrations in a sense. Now, the Roman Catholic Church did not conform to these basic standards. Protestants were uh, sent, well, let me put this, let me, I messed that up completely, so I'm going to try it again. Since the Roman Catholic Church did not conform to those basic standards, the Protestants were therefore justified in leaving it in the minds of people like Calvin um, and not seeking its reformation. So, this is a key for the listeners to understand that Luther had been trying to reform the church, not leave it. But by the time Calvin's involved, they're just simply saying, no, the Catholic Church has stated categorically that these things will are not correct and true, and therefore there's no reformation possible, and we're going to leave it because it's not the true church and it doesn't want to repent. And so with that in mind, it's important to note that Calvin would not consider also a Baptist or an evangelical church to be a true church, simply because we would fail in his thinking on this second point of the Lord's Supper and uh, the baptism. We don't administer it rightly. And I think a lot of people today, they don't grasp that these were huge issues in the Reformation. You know, you, you, do, you baptize only believers, you would be killed or imprisoned. You certainly were excommunicated and treated as something other than a Christian. And so when we're talking about this, everyone who's saying, yeah, we like Calvin, it's like, if you're a Baptist, you should, you should keep that in mind that he also would look at you and I and say, you are not the true church. Right. And that it's annoys true. me. <laughs> <laughs> well, we just kept on reforming that thing. Um, then he, he talked about also the external forms then for the church. So Calvin saw the need to now clearly define an ecclesiastical order for the church since it was no longer possible to return to the Roman Catholic Church, which is where the ecclesiological authorities were. Right, right. So he, he saw that a specific form of church structure and administration was set forth in the Bible. So you see him, they're just going to the word. And he referred to this as being the order by which the Lord willed his church to be governed. And this is key because he believed that if the sacraments were to be rightly administered, 
they had to be administered through a proper ecclesiastical form. And this, of course, left those radical reformers out in the cold. Yeah, yep. You and I, we would be we would be considered radical reformers if we were back then. Yeah. So, well, he saw in there then four distinct groups. He saw minister, elder, deacon, and then there was the people or the laity, if you will. Right. So he also defined the visible verse, well, and the invisible church. So with the visible church, this is with regard to the community of saints that are here on earth. This can refer to the church as a whole or in a specific place, meaning a local church. This body of people includes the good, the evil, the elect, and the reprobates. Um, the visible church represents our current experience. Uh, all believers are to remain committed to the visible church, even in the midst of her weaknesses and struggles. And the way we know that a gathering of people makes up the visible church is if it complies with two basic standards in his mind. Uh, it is the word of God being preached, and then also those sacraments being rightly administered. Um, and that's important because it's, it's not merely the presence of true believers that make up the visible church, uh, but these two aspects must be there as well, namely the word of God being preached and then sacraments rightly administered. Yeah, so he would he would be completely against the Western idea of just finding a new church just willy-nilly. You, you, you can't do it. Um, as long as those two things are present, you need to be there. And again, I, I, I have sympathies for that. Um, I just don't agree <laughs> with his positions that he says make for that this is the only thing would be a true church. While that's a visible church, he also talks about the invisible one, uh, the invisible church. It's made up of the invisible number of the elect, uh, and of course, they're only known by God. So the invisible church is not something you and I could see or experience now. Rather, it's something we receive by faith and hope. And therefore, it's also eschatological in its nature, meaning it's looking to the ultimate culmination of all things because it won't fully come into being until the end of time. That's when we'll find out truly who we're part of the true church, if you will. He also talked about the importance of the church. He, he would say that the church is the institution by which believers are sanctified. I actually really appreciate that as well. Uh, this is the means by which God has ordained us to work out our salvation while on earth. And so Calvin agreed with a guy named Cyprian of Carthage by saying, you cannot have God as your father unless you have the church for your mother. And he would also say, outside the church, there is no hope of remission of sins or any salvation. Now, that kind of a statement really grates on the ears of the Western modern church. But I honestly think it would do us well to ask why. Um, we frequently press upon our congregants at Missio uh, the corporate nature of the church as revealed in the New Testament. Very seldom is the individual in view, and, and that's really his point. He's like, look, the, it is within the church that you hear the gospel, you believe the gospel, and you live the gospel. That's how you grow. Uh, it is not normal nor right to pursue perceive people like just wandering individuals who just kind of do whatever they want to do. He's like, they need to be in a church. And I think I think in America, we've lost that. In well, and that's where the doctrine of priesthood of all believers has gone wrong. Yeah. It's just, we're, we're a means and an end unto ourselves. We can sit down and pray, sing some songs in private, do some devotionals in private, and we have our private relationship with Jesus. On the other hand though, Matt, 
I do think that the scripture's clear that where two or three are gathered <laughs> in my name, there may I, I point you to a uh, podcast, Fixing <laughs> Fables. <laughs> Uh, really? I've never heard of these people. Tell me more. Okay, anyhow. So, um, the avoidance also of schism. Um, and I think that this is kind of humorous because um, the Re- Reformation was a huge schism. And so now they're dealing with the aftermath of that of, okay, everyone needs to slow down and not say, let's keep dividing, keep dividing. And of course, nobody really listened to them. But um Again, I would argue this will grate on people, but it's worth considering. It's also important to see why this became an issue for Calvin, because the Reformation now was fully involved, and the Bible is finally being read by the masses. And as a result, many competing ideas are starting to come up. Um, he, He simply would say, look, there's no justification for leaving a church that cherishes, that's a good word, uh, the true ministry of word and sacrament. That's a quote from him. Um, To have disagreement on non-essential doctrines provides no excuse for leaving it. Uh, So he says in his institutes, we all suffer from some measure of ignorance, and so we must condone delusion on those matters which can go unknown without harm to the sum of religion and without loss of salvation. So he's saying, look, we're we're wrong somewhere. I remember somebody asked John, do you, you, you act like you're always right. John MacArthur, he's like, you, you always act like everything you preach you're right on. He's like, isn't that just arrogance? And John's like, no, if I don't know what the text says, I should shut up. I, he says, I have no doubt I'm wrong somewhere, but I, I until I know what it, what it is, I'm going to preach it because I'm convinced that what I'm saying is correct. And I'm like, Amen to that. Yeah, but you have to acknowledge that there's going to be some ignorance, right? You have to acknowledge that. Well, you, you've already said on another podcast how every time expositional preaching, the thing that's so good about it is it constantly is informing your theology, right? Yeah. It's tweaking it, right. usually very small, um, but it's tweaking it. Um, so he also says in the Institutes, if we're not willing to admit a church uh, unless it be perfect in every respect, we, have, we leave no church at all. And that's good. He again says, these are all quotes from uh, the Institutes. If the sum of necessary doctrines is overturned and the use of sacraments is destroyed, the death of the church follows. So since this happened to the Roman church, he argued, separation from it is actually not schism. Even so, though, he said that Rome, and I, I appreciated this too, he said Rome is not completely dead. He says, if they cannot be given the title of church, We do not, for this reason, impugn the existence of churches among them. In these churches, Christ lies hidden, he says. And so it's kind of like what we have today. People say every Roman Catholic is a false believer. It's like, I, I don't know. I, I'm, I, yeah. I mean, you, you, it, you go throughout the world and the elements are there. Any good Catholic believes in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so he, he just said, look, you don't want to just cast everybody out there, um, that there is that very real possibility that within the Catholic Church there are these little sure. yeah. nuggets, if you will. Yeah, the, the Romanism as a system is corrupt and apostate yes. as a system. But within that system, there may be yeah. those who understand Christ to be their 
bearer of sin. Now, how comfortable are you, though, in saying that that's true of those who are within, like, a bishop on up? See, I, because Cardinal Ratzinger, who then became Pope Benedict, he many people called him a believer. And, I, and then um, uh, Archbishop George of, uh, in Chicago, he was another one uh, who, a man I really respect, I won't give the name over the uh, podcast, but a man I really respect, um, he met with him and he came away thinking the man was actually a believer. Um, and I, I walked away troubled. It's like, by the time you hit bishop, you are you are you have to buy into the doctrine and practices of the system. Yeah, I've never thought about that. Well, I remember, and it's still in some way would love to have him on an, for an episode. But I remember talking with Doctor Allison, and I asked him the question. I said, "If someone holds to, I mean, if they fully hold to every tenet within the Catholic faith, the, the formal, you know, the CCC." Um, do you think it's possible for them to be a saved person? He just goes, I don't know how. Just understand. And when you're at that level that you're talking about, right, a bishop right, on up, right, right. I mean, they get there because they're adhering and understanding and believing in this right. system. Or they're flat out lying. <laughs> in which case, you're just an unrepentant liar. So, yeah. <laughs> I, no, I, I struggle with that. So yes. uh, it's, it's something I'm, I puzzle over. Anyhow, go ahead. Um, okay. So then we come to the Anabaptists. Um, this now this is this is a movement that occurred with it, with the Reformation, and it's it's very broad one, and it's almost impossible to give any view as yeah. sort of the prevailing view. But one key element within the movement was the belief that the magisterial church movement. So your your magisterial reformers, their Luther, Zwingli, and Calvin, um, within that movement was was wrong and still clung to too much. Of the error of Rome. Yeah, that's that's huge. Is that they were looking? It's like no, you're 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 still carrying too much of the baggage with you. Yeah. Uh, in addition, they were fiercely persecuted by Luther, Zwingli, and Calvin. Many of their writings were destroyed, and their beliefs are often defined by those criticizing them rather than from their own hands. And as a result, we'll, we'll only give some broad sketches here of this group, though many of us owe our faith and theology to their labors. So the name Anabaptist, it simply means to rebaptize. if you didn't know. Uh, they were also known as Catabaptists, which is something that Zwingli called them, and that means anti-Baptists. Uh, however, they did not use these terms themselves. They just, they preferred the word brethren. Yeah. Um, that's what they call themselves. <laughs> so in, in addition, um, so uh, James Garrett, he here notes this. He says, 16th century Anabaptist who shared with the most radical reformers the belief that the true church had fallen during the patristic age, committed themselves to the church as restored and gathered on personal profession of faith in Jesus Christ, symbolized by the covenant sign of believer's baptism. A church separated from government and worldly society, living under its discipline, suffering, persecution, and seeking to fulfill the Great Commission. You got any problem with any of those? No. Me neither. None. <laughs> And I, I just get this nasty feeling we would have uh, been drowned. Gone to the lake. Yeah. Yeah. And been, oh, you want to get baptized again? I'll baptize you. Right. <laughs> but it, yeah, it, it is hard um, to really track their theology, but we're going to try. Um, again, this is a very broad um, 
summary right here because they they're all over the map. You got some flat out whack jobs, but you also have some did, real yeah. godly individuals like Menno Simons, where the or Simmons maybe it's I think it's Menno Simons, um, where the Mennonites, Mennonites come from. Yeah. Um, so you have their view of the visible invisible church. For the Anabaptists, the church is made up of only believers, and therefore only those who can show his this faith should belong. Accordingly, only believers can participate in baptism and communion. And so this made them a rather closed community as a whole, uh, where you had to show evidence of your faith. But it also meant you had to have been rebaptized as a professing believer, something any true Baptist would heartily agree with. We would say, it's in our membership. If you yeah. have not been <laughs> baptized by immersion, you can't come in to membership until you have. Um, so here's a broad sweep of how they viewed the church. Notice how many of these points you might agree with, and, and maybe your view of them might change a bit if you're given to, I'm talking to our listeners, if you're kind of given to a snarling attitude about the Anabaptists. They would appeal to the New Testament as the ultimate authority for the church. Primitivism, or the uh, principle of of restoration of the apostolic pattern in faith and practice of the church. In other words, they would look at the New Testament for direction on what its service or church should look like. Uh, the concept of the local gathering was a fellowship of regenerate believers. Um, believers' baptisms would be another one that they would just simply say, you have to be a believer before you're baptized. Yeah. The, then the concept of ordinances as opposed to sacraments uh, that's and that's a distinction they made. Uh, this involved an acceptance of theology based on the ancient symbols or ordinances with a rejection of all creeds. Realize that this was mostly due to how how corrupt the church had become. So they're essentially seeking to do a whole restart for the sake of purity in the church. Uh, also, a rejection of unqualified <laughs> Calvinism, which varies from from slight modifications to total rejection. Yeah, well, depending on who, which Anabaptist you're looking at, they're either Calvin was the devil or maybe the way he worded this or that. And when we talk about Calvinism, it's not the tulip. Remember, tulip wasn't even right, developed right. at that point, but that there were aspects of what John Calvin was saying that they're like, I'm not so sure about that. And again, people will write them off just for that. It's like, are they not allowed to think are they not allowed to look at the word and look at Calvin and say, Calvin's not the word? Um, <laughs> yeah. And, you know. Well, that shows how, how broad and, and variety, there was a lot of variety in, that, in the Anabaptists. Oh, yeah. Um, they held, a, there was a rejection of church hierarchy um, and then an affirmation of religious liberty with the rejection of an established state church. Uh, it's worth noting how radical that was. That would have been very radical. Yeah. Um, in, the, in that day, almost no one could conceive of a separation between the state and the church. For most, they they were two sides of the same coin. Yeah, uh, Luther, I can't remember Luther's famous term for it, but yeah, they, they just simply saw that it the state and the church were inseparably connected to one another. And the Anabaptists were like, no, we're, we belong to something that's a very unique organism uh, and body, which is called the church. And we, we're just not going to be connected to that. Yeah. Um, they, they held to, of course, salvation through faith in Christ. Uh, they held to a concept of a discipleship that included evangelism, ethics, and true social concern. Uh, and it seems useful to see a unifying principle in the desire for a true church. 
Uh, however, there were considerable disagreements as to the nature of that church. Right. So, and that's where the struggle came. So there you go. It's a whirlwind tour of the Reformation and its effects on the church. But we do hope that you can take away a bit of appreciation of these people and groups because, first of all, they exert a lot of influence on us all, but also they suffered a lot um, in the process of trying to break out of the Roman Catholic Church. Hopefully, you will come uh, also come to see that you might have greater agreement with some of these than you first expected. Um, Regardless, we'll get back into formal theology next episode, but until then— Make certain to tune in, join the conversation, give us your thoughts. Um, Also, don't forget to like, share, comment, rate, review. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and I think we're now on WeMe or MeWe. Are we? Yeah. Wow. Maybe we're not, and just the church is, but we will be on MeWe. (laughs) Probably Parlor too. And We are on Parlor. Oh, Oh, we are. That's right. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) So we're still learning how to use those, but we're kind of getting fed up with Facebook and Twitter, but... We'll probably stay with all of them just so that you guys know what's going on. Anyhow, share, like.